0: In fresno 97.5 k248 br in santa cruz and online at kpfa.org the time is 3 30
1: p.m stay tuned next for cover to cover with jocelyn R- richards Welcome to Cover to Cover, Javelin's Bistro. <laughs> and welcome to this third Wednesday. It's good to be back to be with you, listening audience. And normally when I'm on the air with you for Cover to Cover, Javelin's Bistro, I bring to you theater or some, a writer of, of some, usually fiction, which is, happens to be my favorite fiction, is my favorite genre. Or theater. But today I'm going to bring you something a little different from a writer. Uh, his name is Paul Cheville. I've been practicing that last name and I don't know if it's rolling off my tongue right. His book, his work is different because he's dealing with a very, um, uh, the work that he does as a community activist as well as. Uh, taking on challenging issues in our culture, and this is a fourth revised and updated edition of his book, Uprooting Racism, How White People Can Work for Racial Justice and when I when he came in a few minutes ago I shared with him the reason I'm putting this in the, the the category of arts because I would like to be able to see when this work is really happening, the aesthetics of our culture as human beings will will be will move like art, impact us like art. And art I believe is something that opens us up spiritually. And our hearts are open. And so if this work can be done and successful, there'll be a generation of folks where we're moving like theater, like song, like dance, like everything else that you put in the category of art. So, Paul, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Yes. So this is your fourth revised and updated edition of Uprooting Racism. Yes. What what brought you to doing this book, this fourth edition?
0: Well, I wrote the first edition in 1996 after many, many years of doing racial justice work and work on gender and economic inequality. And um, it was a book that I wanted to have out there. Um, I wanted somebody else to write it so that I could refer to it and I could give it to people. Um, And nobody was writing it. (laughs) And so I figured, well, uh, maybe I should do it. And then as soon as I sat down to write it, I realized there's all these reasons why I shouldn't write it. Um, I, I, it's too big. I don't know enough. I'll make mistakes. I'll get it wrong. People won't like that. Um, and so I was kind of stewing over that. And then I realized that that's exactly what a lot of us who are white say about getting involved with racial justice work. We won't do it right. We'll make mistakes. We'll, you know, we don't know enough. We're not ready. And I realize that that's part of what gets us stuck is not pushing through those feelings into actually getting involved, into doing the work that we need to do.
1: So how did you start from the very beginning of doing social justice work before you even began to write the book?
0: I started in the late 1960s in college, uh, the war in Vietnam, against Vietnam was happening and I was, uh, part of a generation that was trying to stop that war and I also on my small liberal arts, uh, almost completely white campus, uh, a group of African American students were brought in my senior year and, um, they were very angry and outraged at the levels of racism they were experiencing on the campus, and um, protested, tried to get a black studies program, and uh, some of us were trying to support them and figure out, you know, how best to nurture what they were doing along. And they they really had two needs. One was direct solidarity, um, supplies, messages groceries, you know, the nitty gritty of what you need when you're organizing. Uh, and the other was they said, well and talk to these white folks because the the students, the faculty administration, don't have a clue about what's going on. And where was this at? This was in Portland, Oregon. Okay. And um and I and so we we, organ, we started organizing the logistical end of it. Um but I realized that I had no idea how to talk to other white people. Um, that, uh, I didn't know enough, um, and I didn't, I had never done it. (laughs) I had no practice in it. So anyway, that started uh, me on a road both of doing racial justice work and thinking about how do you talk with people and write about and, and work with folks, uh, who are not on the front lines of being marginalized by our society. So I got very involved. We started the Oakland Men's Project here in the late 70s to work with men around issues of male violence. And again, it was talking to folks who, are, who benefit from the system, are normalized and don't understand necessarily their stake in changing things.
1: And so, for you, and when you say you didn't know how to talk to folks, what does it really, what does it mean in a very practical, like, talk, like, hi, how you doing? You're talking about you didn't know how to talk to people about the subject matter of race. Right. What would be, what would happen when you would try to attempt those conversations?
0: First of all, I I was very angry (laughs) at them (laughs) for their ignorance and for their non-action and resistance um, and that's uh, that can be a motivator for having the conversation, but it's not a good tool in a conversation. Okay. <laughs> um, I didn't know enough about the history of racism in this country um to and about how it was currently playing out to be able to give examples and to to speak to folks um, and um I just was really unprepared to. I could start the conversation but not in a healthy way and it didn't get very far because there was no I didn't have the tools to be able to bridge the gaps in understanding and information and and will and and intention
1: and having information that would help people to look exactly to look at exactly where this path, the systems that are in place, the things that occur every day that we're not aware of that keeps a racist system in place. Right. If you didn't have all that to just say, okay, here's A, B, C, D, E, F. And someone go, oh, that is absolutely true. So this book, I'm talking with Paul, uh, Uprooting Racism, How White People Can Work for Racial Justice. You said earlier that when you and I was talking before we got on air, that this is the book that you would have wanted to have, your go-to book. Mm-hmm. And so the content of it, tell us what's, what what all is inside of this that you're offering, and it's really geared towards white people, right?
0: Right. The subtitle is How White People Can Work for Racial Justice. Okay. So.
1: And I'm going to put the number out there if anyone wants to join us to ask a question. I may not... Uh, that, may not cross my mind or something you want from Paul to know and the, uh, if you're local it's five one zero eight four eight four four two five. and if you're outside the listening area the area code is 800-958-9008 and so if you hear anything at any point in time because we're only on for uh, a half hour a little less than that by now just call, give us a call and, and share your thoughts or if you know Paul's work or you're interested in Paul's work how you can and also get to have the book are you would you be willing to actually give away a couple books today to any listeners that would like to have a copy oh,
0: i I have one with me
1: <laughs> no I, what I, happens is, oh. is that you can drop it off at the station oh, mail. Yeah. they'll they'll yeah. leave me there for ne- the engineer uh and then Erica, and then she will give that information to me yeah. and I'll get it we work it out, sure, so they'll have a book, so if you want to call and get a book, let us know, so let's talk more about what's in the book Tell us what what's what is it full of.
0: I see the book as a toolbox for white people. Um, There's a lot of us who are white who are angry or confused or upset or just uneasy about what's going on in the country uh, economically, politically, culturally, and environmentally. And there's not a lot of places to turn to... um, to learn a little bit about the history, some of the stories, what's going on today in different institutions like education and healthcare and the criminal legal system. And also what's going on in terms of resistance, how are white people uh why are, how are people of color resisting uh, the racism that they're experiencing and and guidelines for getting involved, links uh, resources. So it's it's really is a toolkit for folks. Um White people who want to make a difference want to get uh, involved in some way but aren't sure how
1: and you also talk about <coughs> in your book that there's the benefit of getting involved, and mm-hmm. I appreciated that writing and the, the what page was that on and that well, well you could t- you could tell us the benefits why would it benefit a person who experiencing Concerns or fears, want to do something but too afraid to move forward. As you were when you first got in this work, it's like, well, what do I do? How do I write this book? I don't know anything. But at the same time, there was something you saying something has to be done. What is the benefits for white people to get involved and to read this book and to do the work?
0: I think that um, I'm part of a national network. Uh, An organization called Surge showing up for racial justice, which was set up to educate and mobilize white people uh, to work in multiracial alliance for racial justice. And one of the values that we hold is the value of mutual interest. The understanding that there are so many ways that we pay costs for racism. We get a lot of very specific benefits from racism. There's no doubt about that. And people of color pay the most damaging and devastating costs, but there are serious costs for white people. Um, One is that racism has always been used to divide poor and working class white people from poor and working class people of color to be able to work together and organize to resist the huge inequality in this country and the the rule of our ruling class. Um, So we're divided from our natural allies by racism. Um, but there's so many other costs where um, white people in general are very segregated. They're very isolated from communities of color. Um, communities of color, people of color are locked out of our society in so many ways. So the creativity and brilliance that they bring to our communities is 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 lost. Um We uh, many white people racism shuts down our compassion for other people for the suffering and marginalization and violence against other people and that damages our integrity our moral integrity Um, there's just so many ways that we're interdependent you know that what happens to the air and water in communities of color also happens to the air and water in white communities um, so there's no way to escape the fact that we're interdependent. And right now, it's it's really clear, given the racist rhetoric of the current administration and neo-Nazis running in the streets here in Berkeley and elsewhere in the country, that um, we're not immune from the impact of racial scapegoating and violence. And um, at the same time, we're told that recent immigrants or muslims or african americans or indigenous people are causing our problems and so unless we can overcome those diversionary tactics and understand our common interest uh we're going down the whole country is going down (laughs) so um there's tremendous benefit for white people stepping up um and it At the same time, we have different roles to play because white people aren't on the front lines of grassroots struggles. And so we don't and we don't pay the same kinds of costs. So the concept of mutual interest is understanding our interdependence, but understanding, too, that we have different roles to play. And uh, the role that white people have traditionally been trained to play is to be in charge, to be in leadership, to make all the decisions. And that doesn't hold here. It, it doesn't really hold anywhere, right? But um, particularly with issues around race, um, people of color are on the front lines and know best how, it, how racism works and how it, it's set up and how the, its repercussions fall on different sets of people.
1: Why do you think that when we see the athletes taking a knee that when white people have a chance to speak to that in a public space, There's an anger, an immediate anger or saying that's not the appropriate place to do that, that demonizing the protesters for supporting the truth that Black Lives Matter and even the words Black Lives Matter to many people, instead of looking at that truth,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Black Lives Matter, they resort to things like, well, this life matters or that life matters. What, in your work that you've done, what is that running to, that place of running away from the truth to, 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 to some distracting factor? Like, why are they kneeling now or it's inappropriate or not looking at the language of, of the national anthem and really looking at what that represents? What is that?
0: I think it's partly that w- most white people are are very ignorant of the extent of racism and the impact of racism in our country, and and also of our history and how foundational racism has been to the building of this country, the very operation of it. Um, so they're not prepared to understand any kind of different perspective. They're they're not open to it. But beyond the individuals, I think we have very powerful institutions and, and the, in which racism is built in to the fabric of how these systems work. And, and so white people are individually reflecting the larger culture, the larger institutional patterns, and, there, and many of us are just parroting what we hear in the media or learned in our textbooks or hear from our political leaders.
1: So this is the fourth edition of Uprooting Racism, How White People Can Work for Racial Justice. Why the fourth edition, and what have you learned since you first wrote this book, and it came out in 19 when?
0: 96, 96 about 20 years ago.
1: 20 years ago. What have you learned in your work in communities, and that you said, let me bring this back in in and add or a take away or what, what happened. Share with us that story.
0: In 1996, we were in a period of time where racism was pretty much off the table. Um, people were saying we lived in a pro- post-racial society, that the civil rights movement had taken care of racism, uh, despite all evidence to the contrary. And um, So when you're saying people, you're saying white people. White people, yeah, <laughs> in particular. Um, and most white people were in denial about the extent of racism, Um So, what's changed, you might ask? Um, And I would say, in some ways, very little. Uh, Racism is as deeply entrenched as it's ever been. And unfortunately, denial in the white community is very strong. Uh, I mean, we saw that in the number of white people who voted for the current president. Uh, And in polls, uh, repeatedly, uh, a majority of white people say racism is not a major problem in our society and it isn't a problem in their community. So it, it's some other place, right? Um, but because of the uh, uh, really courageous leadership of Black Lives Matter and uh, the indigenous people at Standing Rock and elsewhere and the Fight for 15 and, and the DACA youth and other immigrant struggles, etc., um, more white people... Um, Understand that something's wrong, <laughs> um, and and need much more specific tools um, because they're they're curious, they're and where, worried. And where are
1: these white people?
0: Well, they're all over. Um, I see them in in solidarity in marches and rallies. I see them in classrooms speaking up and challenging their teachers. I see them in non um, nonprofit and governmental organizations challenging the racist patterns supporting people of color in those organizations supporting the leadership of people of color so there there's not nearly enough i mean it's still a minority not a majority but i do see many more white people who show up and are concerned or they're working on other issues um, w- women, white women's issues or environmental issues or educational issues, and they realize that there's a racial lens that's missing. And so they're also curious or open to having the conversation, to thinking about how to really incorporate racism, an anti-racist analysis into the work they do.
1: When I think about over the years, in terms of you've been doing this work for 40 years?
0: Uh, 50, 50 or more, yeah. 50
1: more years. And, and when I hear you say that, that white people are ignorant of, of the level of racism, and I've, 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 not, I've heard that before beyond mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. and I always get confused and mm-hmm. think, how could white people be ignorant of racism when they're the tool of racism? That they're the yeah. facilitators of racism. So where is the ignorant? Is that really ignorance or is there something else that, that that's being missed or that being ignorant is almost another run-to place for shelter? Because mm-hmm. you can't be ignorant. Here's my opinion. You can't, and again, it's my opinion. You can't be ignorant of something you participate on a regular basis if you're look, viewing the media and see absence of other people, if you look in your neighborhood, if your attitude towards people, or as you said, fear or whatever, how where's the ignorance? That seems, that seems like a level of personal uh, insurance to keep <laughs> something going along.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we might call it willful ignorance. Um, it's the uh, denial and minimization. Uh, many white people are so socialized into a uh, white supremacist kind of pattern of thinking that they ha- there's explanations for everything. So when uh, an egregious act of racial violence occurs, a hate crime or uh, a murder of something, then white people say, well... It's, it's not most white people. It's this, this particular person who's uh, a neo-Nazi or white supremacist or um, mentally ill. Um, and not, it's not really an act of terrorism. It's something else. So there's a whole explanatory system that I think many white people use to explain away. It's just like with police uh, murders when there's a, a, a video of... A young black man, for instance, being shot unarmed by the, by the police, uh, a lot of white people immediately try to explain it away, right? That, well, he must have done something or he must, must have had a gun or it was self-defense. Do you or- think
1: racism is, is um, like almost like a, a psychotic break in, in uh, reality that exists and has not been treated?
0: Well, I think that that might help. That framework might help explain individuals, but it doesn't explain the institutions. The institutions are built. Would there to, be cultural
1: to, psychosis?
0: Well, the institutions have been built to accumulate power and wealth among the ruling class. So they're intentional. They're 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 not psychotic. They're very calculated. Um, The way most of us as white people have internalized racism um, leads to serious emotional and psychological problems. We have a a completely delusional sense of the reality of what's going on in our country to start with. Um, and a complete misperception of what the history of the country is all about. So, the impact on individuals is definitely psychological and emotional and actually physical. But um, institutions don't operate that way. They're, they're set to produce certain ends, benefiting white people, exploiting people of color. And they're, they've done that for a long time. But
1: as you point out in your writing, the illusion of benefiting white people, because there's an illusion, because you have to, and in some of your writings, you talk about having to disconnect from your uh, forefathers, foremothers, mm-hmm. having to let go of a lot of your culture, whatever it comes from, before you've arrived here in the United States. So there's ways of disconnecting on a regular basis that leads to an absence of, uh, of, of your whole self. Right, of your spirit, of your of your landscape of what your life should be like, like and so a part of that is is there's an illusion to being having white privilege, that's an illusion in itself, because if it is the one percent from reading your readings, reading some of your readings, that there's this illusion like, oh, this is how you this is what you need to buy into in the meantime, we can manipulate your lives to and shape it the way we need for the one percent to continue moving forward.
0: Right. And, and that's how racism was set up in this country in the colonial period, to, to divide Africans from indentured Europeans who were living together and working together, having families together, and, and rising up in rebellion together, and the uh, ruling elite of Virginia in particular. But a lot of the colonies said, we need to separate these people, and we, and we can take advantage of that by uh, making uh, Africans enslaved for life and giving indentured servants certain benefits when they at the end of their indentureship and giving them the sense that they're better than enslaved africans and said so we can set up we can divide and conquer have you
1: in your uh, over the years paul how has this work changed your life or or not change, because you you wouldn't know the change unless you lived the other life parallel. <laughs> but how has it impacted you as a human being, the way you move in the world?
0: I From think- that person
1: on campus that didn't know how, that wanted to support a group of black f- people coming there to have a voice and not being able to speak to your, your peers in that regards. And now fast forward, who are you? Uh,
0: ultimately, it's completely transformed who I am. Um, it's it's connected me <laughs> to other people, other communities. It's connected me to the misinformation and socialization I've had as a white person, as a male, as a person with various kinds of educational privilege. Um, it's um, opened my eyes to m- more accurately see how the world works. And how we are being devastated um, by the this current structure of inequality. Um, it's given me access to lots of other different cultures and uh, music, arts, literature, all kinds of things like that. but but the, the kind of the deepest transformation, I think, is, Personally, just in, in being able to build community, in building relationships with other people across lots of different kinds of difference in ways that brought me out of the isolation and self-centeredness and arrogance and sense of entitlement that as, as a white man, I was deeply socialized into.
1: Do you think it's made you a better uh, partner in life, a father in life? Absolutely. Yeah. Great. So in our last minute uh, that we have together, share with our audience where they can reach you if they're interested in, your book is full of questions people can ask, history, organizations, etc. How can they get hold of you?
0: My website has lots and lots of resources, our articles, links, uh, exercises. Uh, it's just www.paulkivel.com. And those who want to contact me uh, individually, uh, I'm at paul at com. And um, the book is widely available in independent bookstores and also available on my website, Uprooting Racism, How White People Can Work for Racial Justice.
1: Thanks for being my guest and thank you for listening. I've been your host, Jovlin, and I will see you next time.
0: Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies dedicated to building a culture of peace, exposing the true cost of war and healing the wounds of war. The San Francisco chapter of Veterans for Peace is presenting a My Lai memorial exhibit to honor the two million Vietnamese who died in their American war. This is a response to the Pentagon's $63 million campaign commemorating the 50th anniversary of that war, an attempt, really, to justify our immoral military actions in Vietnam, and promote all our ongoing wars today. The MyLie exhibition is in the Veterans Building in San Francisco, April 4th to April 11th every day, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. The Veterans Building is at 401 Van Ness Avenue. The exhibition, co-sponsored by KPFA, is wheelchair accessible. Find more information on the website MyLieMemorial.org. Be sure to catch Apex
1: Express on KPFA. Apex Express is a weekly program following news and cultural events throughout Asia and the Pacific Islands. Find out about issues affecting Asian American and Pacific Islander communities locally and globally. Get on board the Apex Express Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. on KPFA.
0: Hey, this is Caroline Casey, Weaver of Context for the Visionary Activist Show a show that aspires to wed spiritual magic and conscious, compassionate social activism. Join us every Thursday at 2 p.m. as we invoke and implement a more ingeniously cooperative and reverent world.